Our Father, our hearts have been lifted up as we have worshipped in song and prayer this morning. We've been encouraged by fellowship with one another. We've been exhorted, even as we have simply read the Scriptures, being reminded of Your calling and direction on our lives, reminding us what biblical love looks like both in the body of Christ and in the home. And as we open this book to a familiar passage, we don't want the familiarity of it to cloud our eyes to our responsibility, our needs, and your provision. And so would you exhort us, challenge us, equip us, strengthen us, embolden us, and give us delight in you and in this word. Oh, Father, we need hope, and we need courage, and we need joy. Would you work these things in us in this passage this morning? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The couple that stands before their family and friends in front of the preacher in a gleaming white dress and an immaculate tuxedo with flutters in their hearts and beaming smiles on their faces and maybe a few tears in their eyes, depending on the couple, can never imagine a time when they won't be overwhelmed by love. But as Tim Keller has recounted, the changes in their feelings for their mates often come with dramatic speed. He says this, As a pastor, I've listened to hundreds of plaintive accounts of difficult relationships and lost love. Typical is the case of Jeff and Sue. Jeff was tall and handsome, the kind of mate Sue had always pictured in her mind. He was talkative and she was shy and quiet in public, so she loved how he took the lead in social gatherings and directed conversation. Sue was also decisive and future-oriented, while Jeff tended to, quote, live in the present. Their differences seemed to complement each other perfectly. Secretly, Sue was shocked someone this good-looking would fall for her, while Jeff, who many women found to be too unambitious, was glad to find a girl who was so adoring. Just a year after getting married, however... Jeff's talkativeness looked to Sue like self-absorption and an inability to listen. His lack of career orientation was a bitter disappointment to her. Meanwhile, Sue's quietness looked to Jeff like a lack of transparency and her soft-spoken shyness masked what he now saw to be a domineering personality. The marriage quickly spiraled down and ended in a speedy divorce. Disenchantment, the end of the honeymoon, he writes is common and has been for centuries. It is normal, even inescapable, but the depth, depth of disillusion people, the depth of the disillusionment people experience in our time is something new, as is the speed at which marriages collapse. In our day, something has intensified this natural experience and turned it toxic. It is the illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be healed. But that makes the lover into God. And no human being can live up to that. He adds this. 
I'm tired of listening to sentimental talks on marriage. At weddings, in church, and in Sunday school, much of what I heard on the subject has as much depth as a Hallmark card. While marriage is many things, it is anything but sentimental. Marriage is glorious but hard. It's a burning joy and strength, yet it is also blood, sweat, and tears, humbling defeats and exhausting victories. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. Therefore, it is not surprising that the only phrase in Paul's famous discourse on marriage in Ephesians 5 that many couples can relate to is verse 32. Sometimes you fall into bed after a long, hard day of trying to understand each other and you can only sigh, this is all a profound mystery. At times your marriage seems to be an unsolvable puzzle, a maze in which you feel lost. I believe all this, and yet there is no relationship between human beings that is greater or more important than marriage. Marriage, when two people are walking with Jesus Christ, is gloriously wonderful. But it can often degrade into a horror of two enemies coexisting with one another, launching grenades at one another from the same foxhole. I've seen it way too often. Ray Jean and I lived in school housing when I was in seminary. As near as I can remember, and that's a long time ago now, there were 24 apartments in the complex. I have kept up with very few of the people that we lived with and shared apartments with or shared a complex with. But even a dozen years ago, three of those 24 couples had gotten divorced. One of them within three to five years. And as near as I can tell... He ran off with another woman. One of those three was my dearest friend in seminary. One of my two dearest friends. And it ended tragically. You and I have seen it with family members. We've seen it with neighbors, with co-workers, with church friends. We used to have paper directories around here. And I kept a stack of them, you know, as we transitioned from year to year. And it got to where I just couldn't look at the old ones because the names were filled with horror stories and tragic endings of marriages. Marriage is supposed to be gloriously satisfying and all too often it simply ends up as another battlefront and deeply unsatisfying. Is there any hope? Is there any way out? Is there anywhere to, any way to life and joy In the marriage. Oh, brothers and sisters. Indeed there is. This year we are focusing on the idea of excelling still more. To pursuing excellence with with loving one another. With caring for one another. And if we're going to do that well in the church body. We need to start in our homes. And that's the topic for this morning. What love looks like in the home. And today, uh, the day before Valentine's Day, and I wish I could say that I planned this intentionally, but I think it was yesterday when I realized I'm preaching on marriage the day before Valentine's Day. So that was a serendipitous uh, providential leading of God and not my wise planning. On this day, uh, we are going to consider the realities of the world and the realities of marriage and the hope of Christ in both. When we consider the provision of God for difficult marriages, we will find that He provides so much more than flowers and chocolate.
there's really a good way out and excelling still more. What we're going to find from 1 Peter 3 and really 2 and 3 is this. When marriage goes wrong, excel in loving more by remembering what God has provided so that you may live right or rightly. You want to live rightly? When things go wrong, God's provided direction for you and for me to do that. You know, I used to find it a little bit curious. Peter is writing a book about suffering. And it starts right at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to those who reside as aliens scattered. And he lists a number of places that they're scattered to. And they were scattered because of persecution. And he's writing both this letter and his second letter in large part to encourage people to endure and persist and hang on, persevere in the midst of suffering. And in the middle of this book, just about exactly the middle, in fact, there's this long section on marriage. And I thought, Peter, why are you writing about marriage in a book of suffering? Ah, and then I got it. Because isn't sometimes some of our deepest and most hurtful suffering within the context of marriage. And Peter's giving us a way out. And a way to live and a way to endure and a way to honor him. When there is suffering in the most difficult of these kinds of relationships. So follow along with me as we make our way through chapters 2 and 3. And I want to start with this. Okay, Lacey, (laughs) did it again. So there's my outline. (laughs) No secrets today. We live in a world where things go wrong. Isn't that right? You you feel that tension? You, You feel like things out there just don't work the way they should work? Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 The Apostle Peter just kind of gives us a summary of a lot of things that go wrong. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There are fleshly temptations in this world. We might be tempted to think, I've even heard it said by others, once you become a Christian, all the troubles and temptations of life go away. Um, No, they don't. We live in a perverse and wicked and fleshly world that is at odds with what we are in Christ. And we daily fight against all kinds of temptations. And the older you get, it almost seems like the harder it gets, doesn't it? You just recognize the the onslaught and the evil and the wickedness and the perversity. And you you feel, even walking in the shadow of 60, you, you still feel feel this pull to the world and you say, Lord, I I hate this pull. That's the world in which we live. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Every day we live with that reality that we are surrounded By evil in this world. Every day, at some level, we live with the consequences of what happens when we succumb to those temptations that are in the world. Sometimes the consequences are minimal because of confession and repentance. And sometimes they are not minimal in spite of confession and repentance. 
We live in a world with fleshly temptations. We live in a world where believers are slandered and persecuted. Verse, thir- excuse me, verse 12. Keep your, excellent, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The end of the verse is hopeful, right? So they may come to faith in Jesus Christ as they observe you. But the beginning of the verse is hard. They are going to slander you and they're going to take the things that you are doing good and they're saying that's evil. They're going to twist what you do, how you live, what you think. And this is the very thing they did to Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 12. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him. He did something that was good and righteous and benevolent and honoring to God. So that the mute man spoke and saw and the crowds were amazed. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But the Pharisees, the religious leaders who should have been looking for the Messiah, made this... Accusation, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Jesus did good and they slandered him. And Jesus promised that if they did these kinds of things to him and persecuted him, then we could expect nothing else. John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Certainty, promise, guarantee from the words of the Savior. We will be slandered. We we should not be surprised by suffering. We should not be surprised by persecution. Just turn the page in your Bible to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. At the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. It's promised. And it's hard. It's, it's fiery. It burns. It consumes. It's harsh. It's bitter. Believers are slandered, persecuted. They, there really are ignorant and foolish men. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Things that are right and true and obvious to the believer are unknown and undeserved by, undiscerned by unbelievers. The unbelievers persist in what Peter says here is ignorance and foolishness. They, they live lives that, they carry out the realities that they don't understand God, don't understand what God has said, and they live in the perversity and the foolishness of that kind of thinking. This is what we would call the noetic effect of sin. Their brains don't work right. And so when when Peter says they're ignorant, he's not putting them down. It's it's not sarcasm. It's a reality. It's It's a theological construct. This is where they are. They're in the theological category of ignorant. They don't know any better. And and we just see that, don't we? Just multiplied all over this world. And because of that, authorities, verse 18, are sometimes unreasonable. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. There are, there are masters, bosses, husbands, church leaders, governmental authorities who are good and gentle. Peter alludes to them, right? They're, they're good and gentle. They, they treat 
those who are around them wisely, carefully, kindly. They're magnanimous. They're reasonable. They're merciful. And, and isn't it sweet when you find that kind of ruler that's over top of you? But there are others, Peter says, who are unreasonable. They are crooked. The word is scoliose, the word from which we get our word scoliosis, a curvature of the spine. They're twisted, literally, perverted, not going in a straight line. They're unfair, they're harsh, they're ungracious, and they're unchanging. And you know people like that. And maybe you even work for them, underneath them, have to submit to them, have to follow them. Sum it all up, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. There really is unjust suffering. This finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. There are three kinds of suffering primarily in this world. There's suffering that comes from living in a fallen world. This is what I would call cold cancers and car accidents. We just live in a world that's broken and things happen. It's not because of anyone's sin. It's just fallenness, weakness, finiteness. And then we live in a world also where we suffer that come, suffer in ways that come as a result of our own sin. We sin against others and we suffer the consequences of that sin against others. And you know what that's like. And then we suffer thirdly. When others sin against us, they slander us, they malign us, they manipulate us, they're angry with us, they are harsh towards us, they hate us, they persecute us. That's the harsh treatment he talks about in verse 20. These are sorrows that are unjust. We suffer unjustly. Shouldn't be happening. There's no good reason for it. It's not right. Your kids were right. It really is not fair. It's not equitable. But it is reality. That's, that's where we live. That's our world. Isn't that encouraging? It's full of temptation, slander, ignorance, foolishness, unreasonableness, and injustice. Nobody is making travel brochures to travel there. And that's our world. Where we live every single day. And in that world... Wouldn't it be nice to have a sanctuary, a place where those things don't happen, a place where we can be safe and secure and loved and treasured and people head into marriage with that expectation. This is, this is going to be my sanctuary. And it should be. But it often isn't. We also live in a world where marriages go wrong. In seminary, I had a professor. He actually was a very close personal friend, was a family friend for 50 years before he went to be with the Lord. And he told us that he was in ministry as a pastor and professor for 25 years before he had to deal with the issue of divorce. 25 years. And the joke in class was, well, prof, how many days do you think we'll get? Like 25 minutes, maybe? It was more than 25 minutes, but it was about 25 days. It was somewhere in the first four to six weeks where I had to deal with, with the issue of divorce for the first time. So what happens in a marriage that mimics the world? We live in a world where marriages go wrong, where there are disobedient husbands 
chapter 3, wives be submissive to your own husbands. That's where most of us tend to park when we preach that passage. But don't miss the context in which they're supposed to be submissive so that even if any of them are disobedient to the world, they may be one. The implication is they are disobedient to the word, not just they're not just disobedient. They're not just rebellious in the world, but they're disobedient and rebellious against God and what he has revealed to them. And the implication is they know what the word of God says and they're saying, nope, I'm not going there. I won't do it. I won't obey. They hear the word of God. They read the consequences. They shrug their shoulders and they say, oh, well, I guess I'll deal with that when it happens. That's a direct quote from someone to me in my office. Aren't you concerned, I asked him, about facing eternal condemnation? Yes, but not enough to make any changes about it now. That's this man. They're deliberate and persistent in their disobedience. And the way Peter writes this, even if any of them are disobedient to the word, we say we, we, we get the idea, well, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But that's not the way Peter's writing it. He's writing it, um, if you're a linguist of any kind, it's a first-class conditional, which means there's certainty to it. Since some of them are disobedient to the world word, they will, this will happen. It's not just a hypothetical. This is a reality. There will be some who are disobedient to the word of God and they just don't care. That's the reality of marriage. Here's another reality. Wives are tempted to be concerned with externals more than internals. It's always the case that people are more concerned about external appearances than inward character. That's why God said to Samuel um, about, about David, don't look at his, at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's talking about Saul and then David. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Don't think just because Saul is, is tall and good looking that he's going to make a great king. And that because David is young and short and wimpy looking, he's going to make a bad king. Because you can't see the heart. I can. It's all about the heart. The temptation is always to look at externals and to build up the externals. And one of the temptations that Peter notes for women when they're living in difficult circumstances, that one of the temptations a woman faces is to win her disobedient husband back by focusing on externals. To go to the gym and lose 10 pounds to fit into his favorite outfit and to go to the beauty salon and get the latest haircut so she looks good to him. And Peter is not saying it's a sin to look attractive. That's not what he's saying. But Peter is warning about putting a pretty package around dead bones. And just as a man might be deluded into thinking that disobedience is irrelevant, a woman might be deluded into thinking that as long as the package is pretty, she can have a snake's tongue with venomous words and it's okay. It's not. Don't be focused on externals. And, and there, are, there are people in relationships where that's exactly what's going on. There's another way in which marriages go wrong. 
Wives are tempted to be fearful about doing what is right. Notice the end of verse 6. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And the implication is there are fears that a woman faces that she might be tempted by. And we we would like to think that doing the right thing is going to be encouraged and applauded. And sometimes for a woman, doing the right thing is going to leave her in a precarious position in the marriage. She might know the right thing to do. She might be well-trained. She might be well-equipped. She might have a desire to do the right kinds of things, but she believes that if she does the right kind of thing, it's going to leave her in a precarious position. He's going to respond in anger, resentment. He might file for divorce and leave her and the kids in a difficult position financially. There are all kinds of fears that a woman might face. Notice that Peter says any fear. In other words, there, there are all kinds of things, and he doesn't even quantify them. He just says there are all kinds of fears that are out there, and the woman ought to fight against all of those kinds of fears. It can be fear of divorce or finances or influence of the world on children or who will love her or who will love the children if her husband leaves and the, and the father of the children leaves or loneliness. It could be fear of about her reputation. It could be all kinds of things. And when those fears intrude on a marriage... It can become debilitating. There's still another kind of fear. Husbands are tempted to be undiscerning of the needs of their wives. Husbands, verse 7, should live with their wives in an understanding way. They should have knowledge about them personally and particularly as well as generally. They should understand the delicate nature of their wives. That's really the force of this. Husbands need to understand that their wives are created differently. They can't treat them the same as the guys. Frankly, they shouldn't treat the guys the way they treat the guys, but that's a different sermon for a different day. Don't treat your wife like just another one of the guys. She's not made that way. She's delicate in a beautiful vase, a beautiful goblet that needs to be treated with care and gentleness. I thought about that a long time. You know, I think the People come to this passage and they say, live with your wives in an understanding way. You know, and they ask the question, well, what, what, what's your wife's favorite color? I don't know. She likes flowers. Lots of them. What's your favorite flower? I don't know. She likes lots of them. We have lots of roses in our yard, so roses are probably in that category. That's not what Peter's talking about. As I thought about this passage and thought about this passage and I've taught this passage and preached this passage, I don't know how many times, it suddenly struck me one day, years ago. The husband needs to understand his wife is inherently in a dangerous position because she has to submit. She has to follow. She is underneath his authority. And as long as he's not telling her, you know, go against God, go do something ungodly. She has to follow. And it gets even worse. Regine has to follow my sorry leadership. Not just, not just anybody. She has to follow me. And guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you look at the way you lead your wives and you, you can think of 14 ways, and that's on a good day, where you haven't led her well. And you need to live with her understanding 
But she has to submit to you and follow you. And that's hard. And a guy just tend to thinks, well, I'm the guy in this relationship and she needs to follow. Yeah. And you need to lead in a way that she that demonstrates you understand her. I think Peter says this, brothers, because it is not the natural inclination of a man to lead his wife this way. It is the supernatural inclination. The God-infused, Spirit-led, Christ-centered inclination. And if you're going to lead her this way, that's where it needs to start. Husbands also are tempted to overestimate their spiritual authority. It's absolutely true that the husband is the head of the home. He's a spiritual leader. He's the one who is ultimately responsible for the spiritual welfare of his home and leading his wife. But he should never be deluded into thinking that his wife is inconsequential. Notice what Peter says. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is a fellow heir. She's not a subservient heir, a less than heir. She is a fellow alongside equal heir of all of the spiritual blessings that are coming to you. Is there a hierarchy in relationship in the marriage? Yes. There are different responsibilities and different levels of accountability in the marriage. Yes. Is there, is there inequality or is there difference in position before Christ? Absolutely not. We're the same. We have the same Spirit of God. We have the same justification. We have the same Christ. We have the same blood applied to our sins. We have the same eternal life that's been granted to us. We have the same kind of gifting that comes through the Spirit of God. Everything is the same, just different responsibilities. And a husband is tempted to think, well, I'm the man. Brother, she is your equal in Christ. And you need to treat her that way. So, that's the marital world in which we live. There's disobedience and sin and misplaced motives and fear and lack of discernment and lack of compassion and misunderstanding of purpose. Things go wrong in the world around us and things go wrong in our marriages. And sometimes the same kinds of things go wrong in our marriages that go wrong in the world. Slander and injustice and ignorance and foolishness and unreasonableness show up in our marriages as well. Now here's the real problem. We live in a world where things go wrong, but we also live with the expectation that things will not go wrong. Our expectation is that we shouldn't be persecuted for our faith and that our husbands should lead us exactly as Jesus does and our wives will always follow our leadership and never question anything we do. Brothers and sisters, that's not a reality. That's a fairy tale. Because I think your home is like my home and that is there is a husband and wife in our marriage and both of them happen to be sinners. One of my favorite book titles, Dave Harvey, When Sinners Say I Do. (laughs) Isn't that great? It's the reality. There are two, two sinners in that marital relationship. And that means that things will go wrong in your home, in your marriage. 
Listen to what Paul Tripp says in his book, What Did You Expect? I am persuaded that it is more regular than irregular for couples to get married with unrealistic expectations. Again and again, I've sat down with couples who simply do not seem to be taking seriously the important things the Bible has to say about what every marriage will encounter in the here and now. Unrealistic expectations will always lead to disappointment. You know this is true if you've ever looked at a vacation website before traveling there. No vacation site will actually look as nice and function as well as it does on its promotional site on the Internet. You inevitably end up disappointed because you start out with unrealistic expectations. We took our family on a vacation to Disney World. We looked at that beautiful Disney literature. But we weren't told that we would stand under a blazing sun for 90 minutes in 120 degree heat and 200% humidity to ride a ride that would take 33 seconds. And I heard an amen. And those same expectations, those same kind of expectations infiltrate into our marriages, don't they? So if our expectations are skewed, what can we do? Oh, this passage also gives us so much hope for how we're to direct our thinking and our actions. And it starts with a really small phrase. One little phrase that's going to guide our thinking. It's in both verse 1 and verse 7 of chapter 3. In the same way. Verse 1, you wives. Verse 7, you husbands. In the same way. Now that's not a throwaway phrase. Peter's doing something intentional with that phrase. In the same way as what? Well, the direct antecedent is in verse 21 of chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose... Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then verses 22 to 25 explain how Christ suffered in this world and the kind of example he left us. Chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way. In the same way as Christ lived in this world, in suffering, we are to live wives... In our marriages with disobedient husbands and husbands, we are to live in that same way with our wives that are difficult following the example of Christ. And what's the example of Christ? Verse 22, though he suffered, it was not because he sinned and not because he deserved the consequence of his sin. So in a marital context, our suffering should never be because we have sinned and we're getting the just reward for our sin in the context of our marriage. Verse 23, he did not reciprocate or retaliate with the same kinds of injustice that he had to endure. That also is a model for our marriage. And then also because he entrusted himself to the care of God who is just And kind, that's also in verse 23. I think when Peter says in the same way, he's saying when you live in this kind of world, chapter 2, and in these kinds of marriages, chapter 3, where things are really hard, you need to practice Christ 
Because he's giving you the model. Follow this in your marriage. But I think when Peter says in the same way, he's pointing backwards even further than Christ. And I think he's going back at least to chapter 2, verse 11, if not even earlier. The way a wife lives with an unbelieving husband and the way a husband lives with his wife, believing or unbelieving, is the same manner as any believer lives in any difficulty in this world. And so let's, let's see what Peter says about how we're to live in this perverse world and draw out the implications of that for our marriages. When marriage goes wrong, remember these principles. Work out, excuse me, work for the salvation of your spouse by the excellence of your character. So verse 11 of chapter 2. We live in a world where there are fleshly lusts that are waging against, waging war against our souls. And to that, he says in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent. That word excellent is a word that we might translate as good or something that is done well or something that is beautiful. So when a believer is treated unjustly, the first impulse of the believer should be the question, is my response indicative of my position in Christ? Is my faith being lived out beautifully in this context? And notice that because of Christ, it is possible to live a beautiful life when we are suffering unjustly. He makes the same Basic principle to the wife in chapter 3, verse 1. The great testimony of a wife to her unbelieving husband is her behavior. When you are mistreated by a husband who is disobedient to the word, conduct yourself in such a way that he may be one, notice the end of the verse, without a word by the behavior of his wife. Now, he's not saying she can't ever preach the gospel to him. She can't ever communicate. This is what it means to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying this. Her life needs to coalesce with, be in conjunction with, be in harmony with, and flow out of her relationship with Christ. That she ought to be living her faith in such a way that the husband realizes, I know what I'm doing to her. And I'm treating her so unfairly and unrighteously. And she still responds with grace and gentleness and kindness. How in the world does she do that? And he asks the question, how do you do that? And she says, let me tell you about Jesus. He knows her better than anyone else. And if he can't see a changed life, then why would he be attracted to Jesus Christ? The most significant thing she can do is live with excellence before him. I want you to notice something else about this verse. Notice I remember I said a few minutes ago that there's a certainty that to the disobedience and rebellion of certain husbands since 
any of them or some of them will be disobedient to the word. They may be one. They may be one still falls under that first class conditional. There will be some who are rebellious and there will be some who will be one. He's not saying every ungodly husband will repent and trust in Christ, but he is saying some will. And oh, sisters, there's hope there for you. It's not a guarantee, but there's hope. All, all that you are responsible before Christ is to let your, let your behavior be excellent and then let God draw him. And some will be drawn to faith in Christ. Work for the salvation of your spouse by the excellence of your character. When marriage goes wrong, remember as well to honor all people, even ungodly mates. Such is the will of God that by doing right, 2.15, that you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Remember, there are ignorant people in this world. <clears throat> their brains don't work right. Their minds don't work right. Their hearts don't work right. They cannot process things in right ways. Paul says, act, or excuse me, Peter says, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor. What's the next word? What's the next word? What's the next word? All. All people. All. There's a temptation when we've been wronged and sinned against to lash out in retribution and anger. There's a tendency to want to demand justice in the very loudest of terms. There's a desire to exercise our freedoms. I have freedom. I'm an I'm an American. I'm not just Christian, I'm American. And Paul says, I've been in Romans way too long. Peter says, act as free men. You have freedom. But he puts a caveat on it, doesn't he? Puts a condition on it. But do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Instead, use it as a bond slave of God. Yes, you're free, but you're not ultimately free. You're not preeminently free. You're only free as much as a slave of Jesus Christ can be free to Him. And everything you do in freedom ought to demonstrate that you're enslaved to Christ and you want to follow Him. And out of the flow of that, He says, honor all people. That word honor means to treat with respect. To speak rightly, to speak fittingly of the position of another. Now a wife doesn't need to submit to her husband when the husband is leading her to evil and to disobedience and to rebellion against God. But even when the husband is inciting her to evil, she still must honor him. Respect him. Give him dignity. And treat him and speak about him and speak to him in gracious, kind, and gentle words. There is no exception to this. It's true of the wife. It's true of the husband. It's true of the parent with a rebellious child. It's true of the child with a rebellious parent. It's true of a citizen 
with a rebellious government. And it's true of a government with a rebellious citizenship. You honor all. When marriage goes wrong, remember there is value in patient endurance. Some of us struggle with impatience. I've got about 14 stories here, but I don't have time. But you, they're all self-stories, by the way. They're me. I am not patient. But I'm not always impatient. And you're, if you're impatient, you're not always impatient either. When somebody is kind and benevolent to you and gracious to you, you're not impatient then. If your wife cooks a meal for you that's particularly nice and says, oh, honey, sit at the table and let me bring you. Okay, bring it on. I'm happy to wait. Ah, oh, smells great. Oh, let me serve you an appetizer. Oh, that'd be great. I'm not impatient then. I'm not always impatient. When am I impatient? When I'm suffering or I think I'm suffering and I want out. Because I've perceived it as it's not right. I'm owed something better. I don't deserve this. It's then that impatience rises like a mushroom cloud of atomic explosion. And then when that happens, not only has the explosion taken place, but then the person who receives the offense wants to get out as quickly as I want to get out of Garden Ridge store and all the smell of potpourri when Regine tries to take me there. (laughs) God, get me out of here. Right? Let me out. Both of you are saying, we don't need to endure it. But notice what Peter says. Verse 19. This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. That word favor, it's actually the word grace. This finds grace if you bear up under sorrows when you suffer unjustly. Do you want to know how the grace of God can sustain you? Then you have to suffer. If you don't suffer, you'll never learn just how far God's grace will go in bearing you up and taking you through the sorrow, through the grief, through the hardship. I've had more than one recent college graduate come to me and express his disfavor with the job that he got right out of college working for a multi-billion dollar corporation and a year of experience and a college degree on his wall. He knows how to run that business far better than the president of the company and he tells me all about it. I'm just going to quit and I'm going to leave. I'm going to show them. And I, I always say, well, brother, you certainly have liberty to do that. It's a freedom issue. It's a wisdom issue about whether or not you stay in your job or leave your job. But let me just ask you this question. Are you going to, li- are you going to learn more by enduring in this circumstance 
and demonstrating Christ in this circumstance? And are you going to learn more about his sustaining grace in this circumstance by leaving or by staying? And our tendency is to just say, well, let me run. Let me get out. It's hard. Let me out. And we never learn by running what grace is available to us in staying. This is Peter's way of saying, when you're in a trial, wait, rest, trust, persevere, continue, and then see what God's grace can do in you and through you. When marriage goes wrong, remember that you have been called to suffer. We've alluded a lot to the reality that suffering is in this world. And it's nothing unusual. But brothers and sisters, look at verse 21 of chapter 2. You have been called. You have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. You've been called to suffer like Christ. It is your calling in salvation to suffer He suffered, we will suffer. He experienced injustice, we will experience injustice. We think that suffering is unusual and unfair and inappropriate, and God says, it's your calling. And again, we're going to learn more about the sufficiency of God when we suffer than when we are at rest. And when you're in a marriage that is hard, and I am convinced, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular, but I am convinced that in a room this size, there are multiples of you that are in hard marriages. Brother and sister, it's not unusual. And God is giving you an opportunity to experience His grace and His kindness in a way that you will not ever find any other way. And He's called you to follow after Christ in that. And he's equipping you to do that. When your marriage goes wrong, remember that you are in your marriage as a means of grace to your spouse. It is tempting to think of my marriage as being about me. (laughs) I, I don't know how many times I've read this, quoted this from Paul Tripp. It's my favorite, one of my favorite quotes out of his book, Relationships Are a Mess Worth Making. He says this, when I got married, I did what every other groom does. I repeated my vow, repeated vows to my wife that said I would love her sacrificially all the days of my life. Who was I kidding? I look back and see how little I understood what I promised. What I was really thinking to a large degree was, this is great. I love me and now you are going to love me. I'll take that as a laugh of agreement. My love was very shallow and it only took a few days of marriage to figure that out. And God had plans to use my wife and my children to show me just how shallow my love was and to help it deepen as I saw how much I needed to grow. If your spouse is an unbeliever, how is he or she going to come to Christ? 
Who is the person that God has placed most closely to that unbeliever so that unbeliever can hear the word of Christ and see it lived in harsh circumstances? Chapter 3, verse 1. Some are going to be disobedient and some may be one. Our expectation in our marriage is that someone is now going to meet all of our needs. God's expectation is that I've been placed in my marriage to meet Regine's needs. Now, if she happens to meet some of mine, and she does in incredibly magnanimous ways, but folks, that's gravy. My responsibility in my marriage is to make sure that I'm a conduit of grace to her regardless of what I get from her. Guys, is your wife flourishing because you are a conduit of grace to her? That's what verse 7 says should be happening. That she flowers under you. There's a principle that goes along with this and it is this. Your goal in your marriage is your personal transformation. I don't know how many times I've sat in a counseling room with a couple and I said, okay, let me just ask some basic questions. Tell me about what's going on. What's your primary problem? And they look at each other. Her, him, that's the problem. I've even heard them say it in those terms. If she would just fix it, if he would just change, God is interested in fixing the marriage. But that fixing starts with you. Notice that Peter, and Peter does the very same thing in this passage that Paul does in Ephesians 5. Peter addresses the wives, and when he addresses the wives, he doesn't say, get a different husband. And when he addresses the husband, he doesn't say, get a different wife and everything is going to be fixed. He addresses the wife and says, make sure that you're following your biblical mandates, regardless of what your husband does. And husband, make sure you're following your biblical mandates, regardless of what your wife does. Your job is you. Your job is not her. You let me take care of her. You let me take care of him. You make sure you're following in obedience. Your responsibility is your spiritual transformation. One last big one. It is possible to be godly and content when your spouse is ungodly. Your husband does not need to be Godly, he does not need to be obedient for you to be pure and respectful, wives. Husbands, your wife does not need to be submissive and loving for you to be understanding and gracious and honoring. It is possible to honor the Lord with your actions even when you are in a hard marriage. How? In the same way the same way as what in the same way as unbelievers excuse me as believers have always lived in unjust situations and in the same way that Christ lived in injustice 
and honored God and pointed people to God. Too often we are far more interested in getting out than changing and appropriating the principles that we need in our own lives and our own hearts for God to change us. And we're discontent and frustrated and angry and ungodly because we've never learned the joy of in the same way suffering. And maybe, just maybe, when you suffer like Christ, not only will you be transformed, but maybe your spouse will be also. In his little booklet, Marriage, Whose Dream, Paul Tripp writes this, If your dream for marriage were to crumble, if your marriage were to appear dry and bare, could you still rise and say, I am full of joy because the Lord is Lord of my life and gloriously, in the midst of all the struggle, I have Him. Here's the reality. God's goodness, love, power, strength, and glory and His call to you Do not change when your situation seems bleak and empty. He is still there and he still satisfies. Our goal in the church this year as a church body is to excel still more in loving one another, in caring for one another. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you that that starts in our home and it starts in the central relationship in our home And that is in our marriages. And we will excel still more in the body of Christ when we are excelling still more in loving one another in the context of our marriages. Father, thank you for this word. We want life easy. And because of that, there's a sense in which this is hard to us. But it's... It's really the only pathway to joy. So would you be pleased to work these principles in my life for my transformation? Would you be pleased to work these principles in the lives of our elders and deacons in their marriages and our Sunday school teachers and our Awana leaders our nursery workers our counselors Father, in every home that's part of this body of Christ, what we need is to suffer well and to endure hardship well and to continue to love well even when relationships are difficult. Would you, in your grace, enable us to excel still more in loving one another starting in our homes. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.